Happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. Fear, as an incentive for righteousness, has fallen out of fashion in modern days. One just needs to look for the original The Boy Who Cried Wolf story to learn this. The boy survives now. Sort of neuters the whole point of the thing. It was pretty poignant and obvious in the original. Lie and die. Tell the truth or be eaten by wolves. Had some punch to it. Fear can often motivate us to do the right thing. The Bible has no problem holding out both blessing and curse as dual catalysts to motivate our obedience, to help press us into the way of righteousness. Yet in our day, we almost recoil at the idea of using fear to motivate obedience, especially when it comes to spiritual things. God is is often viewed as some sort of marshmallow of love, You know, everybody, you just fall into him. He doesn't have standards. He can be shaped. Certainly he doesn't get angry. Hell is taboo. Wrath is considered an old relic of primitive people, only picked up by backwood Baptists and the sort. Many Christians are embarrassed of this out-of-date doctrine. It is to be relegated to the back shelf of a closet somewhere so it can gather dust and be forgotten. We even blush at old sermon titles like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Today, such a sermon might be entitled Seekers in the Arms of a Merciful Father. I mean, after all, uh, the good news is about mercy and grace. We don't want to be thought of as those disreputable hellfire and brimstone people. But friends, to be a Christian is to be a hellfire and brimstone person. We must understand that judgment requires wrath. That mercy without judgment isn't mercy. The cross without wrath is a meaningless gesture. Christianity without judgment is, at the end of the day, a Christianity without teeth that can't deal with the problem of evil ultimately. It is a good thing that God judges evil. The Bible does not blush about the eternal destruction promised to those who hate Christ Jesus. And nor should we. It is true that God is angry with the wicked every day. We shouldn't shrink back when the Bible motivates us to holiness by telling us about the terrors that await the ungodly. We are in 1 Kings chapter 22 this morning. 
And this passage does have a melody of grace to it, and we'll spend a lot of time there, actually, as we consider the life of the godly king Jehoshaphat. But the note it leaves ringing in our ears is one of God's judgment. We should come away from this book and from this passage fearful, trembling at the great power of our almighty God. We should come away from this passage grateful that this God who is so just is also merciful and has sent his only son to die for our sins so that we might not have to endure his wrath. We should walk away from this passage living in light of the judgment to come. That's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. Live in light of God's judgment and listen to the word of the Lord. Your outline is there before you. Let's pray together and get started. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would carve the eternal truth of your word onto our hearts. I ask that you would make me faithful in teaching. Give me clarity of mind, purity of heart, eloquence of tongue. Fill us all with your Holy Spirit. Give us a sense of your presence, a taste of your goodness, a sight of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Ahab has been the prototype for wickedness since we were introduced to him all the way back at the end of chapter 16. We are immediately told that Ahab is among the worst of the worst. And as we consider him, we, we've thought of him as sort of a counterfeit Solomon, like Solomon's evil twin, right? Solomon builds a temple to the Lord. Ahab builds a temple to Baal, worships Baal, worships Jezebel, the son of Eth. They all. Solomon ushers in an era of unprecedented blessing in Israel, every man under his vine. Ahab ushers in an era of unprecedented idolatry, every man doing right in his own eyes, according to the will of his own idol. I mean, Ahab even commissions the rebuilding of the city of Jericho. Such a striking thing. It seems to us as a reversal of the conquest. Teaches us that though the people were to drive out the Canaanites, to drive out idolatry and take possession of the land, be a a holy people distinct from the world, that has not happened. No, friends, instead of taking the land, the land has taken hold of them. Under Ahab, the Israelites have become Canaanites. And so God's judgment comes according to his covenant curses outlined in Deuteronomy. And Elijah shows up to confront Ahab. He tells them that it will not rain, and so it does not, until Elijah's word three years later. The people will be without rain, and we notice also without God's word. God judges his people by withholding his word and withholding rain. 
Uh, We see that as God's prophet, the bearer of his word, is hidden away by the brook Cherith and in the home of a Gentile widow, fed by unclean birds and an unclean woman. And again, we are struck that these birds and this woman listen to the word of the Lord, while Ahab, the king of Israel, plugs his ears. He does not listen. Finally, after three or so years, Elijah is summoned to confront Ahab at that most famous of showdowns on Mount Carmel. Which God is the real God and which God is supreme will finally be proven. Is it Baal or Yahweh? The results are decisive and clear. Yahweh, the Lord, he is God. Fire falls from heaven to prove this. The false prophets are slaughtered. Ahab can even feel the rain on his skin. And unfortunately, though Ahab has seen fire and rain, like James Taylor, he does not change. No, he returns home to the monster in his bedroom. Still, God does not stop speaking to Ahab. In chapter 20, he is met by a prophet of the Lord. And he is told that he will be given victory over enemies that come against him. And we learn in that chapter he's given not one victory, but two. So that he, in one case, him as an individual, and in the second case, so that all the people of Israel corporately will know, quote, I am the Lord. That the Lord, he is God. There's the same message of Carmel over again. The Lord, he is God. And Ahab will not listen to his voice. Though there is this little glimmer of hope in chapter 20. Remember, we see him defeating the enemy with his very small military unit. We started thinking, man, that's a lot like Gideon. Gideon was a great hero in Judges. Maybe Ahab is going to be like Gideon. He's going to turn a corner here and begin listening to the word of the Lord. We even see him in the second battle. He causes the enemy to flee, and they are crushed by walls that come tumbling down. Maybe Ahab is like Joshua, great leader of God's people. Then at the end of chapter 20, we find that he lets the king of Syria go away in peace. He does not devote to destruction that which the Lord requires. And he proves himself not to be Gideon or Joshua, but to be Achan, that great troubler of Israel. He's led them into idolatry. He's made peace with their enemies. He has done what is right in his own eyes instead of listening to the word of the Lord. And so we see the first of the trifold curses that come against Ahab at the end of the book of Kings. The prophet tells him of his end and of the judgment of God that is coming. Ahab goes down to his summer palace and decides he's going to pick up his spirits 
by taking hold of Naboth's vineyard and turning it into a vegetable garden. The imagery is not on accident. Remember, the Bible refers to Israel often as a vineyard. When it refers to a vegetable garden in Deuteronomy, it is in relationship to Egypt. They're again being signaled to the idolatry and the sinfulness that Ahab has brought into the northern kingdom. He is not walking in the way of David, but in the way of Jeroboam. And yet, righteous Naboth stands against him. He will not sell out his promised land so that Ahab can have a vegetable garden. And Ahab, whiny as he is, goes to his home vexed and sullen and whines. And then misuses his authority by abdicating it. We're transported back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3, if you will. He sins, listening to the voice of his wife about a garden. And the result is death. The righteous blood of Naboth is spilled because of the wicked conspiracy plotted out by Jezebel. All is good for Ahab, though. He comes and takes hold of Naboth's vineyard. And then we get that second curse. Elijah shows up. and He tells him judgment is coming. That his house will go the way the houses of Jeroboam and of Basha. They stink before the Lord, and therefore the Lord will destroy them. It's interesting at this point. Ahab's had God's word come to him over and over and over again. And this time, he tilts his heart in God's direction just for for a flash in time. He's remorseful. He humbles himself before the Lord. And and I love one commentator said, it's as if the Lord nudges Elijah in the ribs and says, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? I'm going to have mercy on him. God is so rich in mercy. He is a big spender. He's excited about pouring his mercy out on those who will humble themselves before him. He decides not to bring about the end of Ahab's house while Ahab is living. Unfortunately, Ahab's remorse is not repentance, and it is not long-lasting. It fades. And then we come to the beginning of chapter 22. And we find that Ahab wants to take hold of a city, Ramoth-Gilead. And this city is in the possession of none other than the king of Syria. Remember, he let the king of Syria go, despite the word of the Lord. The ironic. We find that he wants to take this city back, and he's going to do it with the help of the Judean king, Jehoshaphat. Last week, we looked at their interaction. There's 400 prophets that are sort of connected to Yahweh, but probably more connected to Baal. And they only tell Ahab what he wants to hear. Jehoshaphat asks, are there any prophets of the Lord, genuine prophets of Yahweh, that we can inquire of about our joint military venture here? Ahab says, there's one, you know, Micaiah. But he doesn't ever tell me what I want to hear. He always says, Wicked things are going to happen to me. 
So they call for Micaiah, but in the interim, Zedekiah shows up and he has fashioned those wild ox horns and he says, you're going to gore your enemies. You know, it's like an ancient fog machine. It's very flashy, very entertaining. Everybody loves it when Zedekiah comes to church. They're like, all right, we are going to take out the Syrians. It is God's will. And then Micaiah shows up and Micaiah tells Ahab that he will die if he goes to this battle. And he actually pulls back the curtain to God's divine war room. And he tells Ahab, God has put a lying spirit in the mouths of your lying prophets. They are lying to you so that you will go up to this battle and be judged by God. You will go up to this battle and die. They're lying to you. The truth is, is if you go, you will die. And so he presents him with lies and truth. And he says, Ahab, you can live by lies and die, or you can live by the truth of God's word and live. And Ahab chooses to live his own truth. He opts for the lie, and he goes out to battle. But there is that odd twist. He sort of half believes God's word. It's like, I'll, he says, I'll disguise myself and go into battle, as if he can hide himself from God. And he gets Jehoshaphat to dress like a king. You know, the enemy's attention will be focused on Jehoshaphat. We walked through this passage last week, but I do I want to bring attention to Jehoshaphat this week. So we're actually going to start in verse 29. This is what we read. And, and what we're going to see, what I hope that you will see, is the author is making a contrast between the ungodly ways of Ahab and ultimately Ahab's son, Ahaziah, who goes the same way as his father, and the godly king of Judah, Jehoshaphat. I hope to make that apparent. Verse 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear robes. That's my whiny Ahab voice. It's always whiny. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, and when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Now, last week I said, why on earth would they turn away from Jehoshaphat? And I guessed, along with some of the commentators that I read, that maybe they heard his Judean accent and went, that's not the king we're after. You know, this is not the king you are looking for. Or maybe he screamed out something like, hey, Jehoshaphat here, not Ahab, and they turned away. But this week... As I read the parallel account in Chronicles more carefully and more slowly, I learned the answer to our question. Why do the Syrians flee? And we're going to read that in Chronicles. I put it on your insert so you don't even have to turn there. We're going to read it in just a second. But let me make a quick word of application. When we are reading our Bibles, 
it is important to read like elephants. And what I mean by that is that it is so helpful to read slowly. Read our Bibles slowly and according to well-worn paths of faithfulness. What I mean by that is that it's always a good practice to interpret Scripture with Scripture, to read our Bible in light of the whole, and to read it carefully. This will help you avoid mistakes like the one I made last week. Listen to 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verses 31 to 32. As soon as the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. So the reason the Syrians flee away from Jehoshaphat is because Jehoshaphat cried out, not in general, but cried out to the Lord. The Lord helped him. This is ultimately the difference between Jehoshaphat and Ahab, between Christians and non-Christians. Christians are those who, like Jehoshaphat, call out to the Lord for help. We are those who call out to the Lord in faith and are saved. My non-Christian friend, if you are here, you need to know that we Christians do not think we are better than you. I don't think that. In fact, we confess that we are sinners, that we have done wrong things and rebelled against God, just as you have. But the difference between us is that we have called out to God in faith and asked Him to forgive our sins and to welcome us into His family through Christ. My dear non-Christian friend, let me invite you this morning to join the chorus of the calling. To call out to God in faith and be saved. God will give you life. He will save you from death. All you need to do is call out to Him. And this is not the only time Jehoshaphat calls out in faith to God. There's a wonderful account, you'll have to read it this afternoon, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And Jehoshaphat is surrounded by enemies. He doesn't know what to do, and he prays one of my favorite prayers in all of Scripture. This is what he says. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I love that. We don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. This is something that should be in all of our prayer rotations. We, we don't know what to do, Lord. Life is harder than I thought it would be. Things have not unfolded according to my plans. Circumstances are tough, but I trust you. My eyes are on you. I don't know what to do, Lord, but my eyes are on you. Christian, put your eyes 
on Christ this morning. Put your trust in Christ once more this morning. Lift your eyes to Calvary's hill where blood and sorrow flow mingled down. Put your eyes on the old rugged cross. Put your eyes on the nails in his hands and in his feet. Put your eyes on his pierced side. Put your eyes on Christ crucified. And remember, remember, he will get you out of this. He will deliver you from every enemy, from every sorrow, from every pain. He will one day say, behold, I have made all things new. He will wipe every tear from the eye and jettison mourning so that you never are sorrowful again. Put your eyes on Christ. Pray, I don't know what to do, Lord, but my eyes are on you even unto death because I know, I know that I can trust you. We are so tempted to be burdened and overwhelmed with the anxieties of life when circumstances around us are not going well, when the enemy is closing in, and we we sort of want to crane our necks and slump our shoulders and look down at our feet, at, at just this world. We get obsessed with paying our bills and our families, and our families are good things. I don't want to tell you not to love your family. But we become preoccupied with anything and everything but the Lord. What we ought to do is lift our eyes to the Lord and have an eternal perspective, trusting in Him. Jehoshaphat shows us the way here. He is in great peril, and he calls out to the Lord. He is helped, my friends. Let us never cease to call out to the Lord. Let us pray. Jehoshaphat calls out to the Lord and is helped. He is ultimately a godly king, but he is not a flawless king. He makes mistakes. We're going to read verses 41 through 50, and I want you to focus a little bit on verse 43. Everything sort of turns there. Verse 41. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhai. Here you go. Here's the bottom line of his life, and we'll come back to it later. He walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet, here's the contrast, yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. Not a good thing. He makes peace with Ahab and Ahab's son. Ahab's son later on in life, and we're going to read about the ships in a second, but God in his wrath destroys those ships. It is a sinful thing for Jehoshaphat to become joined with Ahab. Light and darkness 
are not to be joined together. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the book book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And from the land he exterminated the remnant of the male cult prostitutes who remained in the days of his father Asa. There was no king in Edom. A deputy was king. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold. But they did not go, for the ships were wrecked at Izian Giver. Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat was not willing. And Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. Big picture, we see that faithfulness is not tantamount to flawlessness. Jehoshaphat makes mistakes. He always does what is right in the sight of the Lord, like his father Asa. But at the same time, here are some things he did wrong in verse 43. He makes mistakes. Faith in the Lord, friends, is no guarantee of perfection. You can be faithful without being flawless. Additionally, Jehoshaphat does dumb stuff. I mean, he joins Ahab and he joins Ahaziah. And the reason he does that is he joins Jehoram to Ahab's daughter, Athaliah, who was probably Jezebel's daughter, carbon copy of her. Uh, you'll remember we visited Athaliah a few Christmases ago and she exterminated all of the people in the king's household except for one of the children who was secreted away. Really a lovely woman. Marries his son to her. He's, he's thrown his lot in with Ahab. And this shows us that faith in the Lord is no guarantee of good discernment. Jehoshaphat loves the Lord like his father Asa. His heart is wholly true to the Lord all his days. And yet he joins up with Ahab. This is poor decision making. Christians are capable of poor decision making. We can really love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and make some really poor choices. We can be undiscerning. Can you imagine that Jehoshaphat talked himself into this alliance with Ahab? I mean, after all, Ahab is a, he's a king in Israel. They're sort of on the same page, aren't they? He's a nice guy. He threw him a feast. I mean, why not? Why not go out to war with him? He's got prophets. Some of them will use the name of the Lord. I mean, Zedekiah even uses some scripture. Ahab's not that bad. He can be compromised with. Jehoshaphat weds himself to wickedness. And this is foolishness. It is unwise. And the Lord in his grace and mercy, Jehoshaphat survives this battle in 1 Kings 22. But when he goes home, the Lord sends a prophet to him to rebuke him. 2 Chronicles 19, verse 1. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. But Jehu, son of Hananiah, the seer went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, 
Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Asheroth out of the land and have set your heart to seek God. The prophet's message is clear. Do not wedge yourself to wickedness. A lack of discernment, unwise living, always leads to compromise. Again, we aren't, we aren't perfect. We, we make a lot of poor decisions. We can be undiscerning. How often have we seen a young Christian man or young Christian woman choose to wed themselves to a non-Christian man or a non-Christian woman and say, yes, this is, this is fine. They're nice. Or maybe more pertinent, you can just look over the past couple years at this happening, a lack of discernment and compromise at a denominational level. See it among the Methodists, the Anglicans more recently. There is a host of issues. People want to compromise with the sexual revolution. And they aren't alone. We have similar issues brewing in our own Southern Baptist Convention, do we not? There are many who want to uproot God's created order in favor of the serpent's upside-down egalitarianism. Famous pastors, Rick Warren even, are demanding that the faithful loosen their grasp on the clear teaching of Scripture and compromise. Compromise as it relates to women serving as pastors and elders. He and others demand this, not because Scripture is unclear, but because it is unpopular. He believes that Paul's clear prohibition should be thrown out. After all, women do share the gospel with people in the Bible. Why would we limit them? Warren lacks discernment. Those who would compromise with him lack it also. But we can see the argument, right? Rick Warren, America's pastor, purpose-driven life. He's a nice guy. He's a Christian. Do we really have to make a fuss about doctrine? Not that important. Can't we be united around a love of Christ and the Great Commission? It is easier. It does have a higher public approval rating. After all, the world is watching, and if they see churches splitting from other churches, I mean, what kind of witness is that? But friends, God is watching. And His Word is more important than any public perception. Obedience is more important than optics. Church, discernment demands that we refuse to compromise. It is better to be divided by truth than united in error. Some hills must be died on. It is better to die on a hill with your Bible in your hand than it is to walk away from that hill with the Word of God still upon it.
Compromising truth to to stay united is cowardice. Squishy ecumenicalism is no substitute for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is a betrayal of Christ to make peace with wolves that twist his word. We must not entertain it. We cannot take just one step closer to grandmother's bed and say, oh, how sharp your teeth are. She will devour us. Brothers and sisters, we must be discerning and set our hearts wholly on the Lord. We must exercise wisdom. And so, we want to say on the one hand, don't be undiscerning like Jehoshaphat. And on the other hand, we want to say, be like Jehoshaphat. Call out to the Lord in faith. Set your heart on him. I mean, that's the bottom line there in verse 43. He walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. He is called faithful at the end. Jehoshaphat gets, well done, good and faithful servant. So often, I run into Christians who think of themselves primarily as failures. I'm so unfaithful, I'm the worst, I'm a terrible person, just a horrible Christian. I want to shake them and say, that's not true. You, if you are loyal to the Lord Jesus, are holy. You are his holy people. You are a sinner, you've been made a saint. You are holy, you are being made holy, and you will be made perfectly holy. Yes, you're in progress. You're becoming in practice what you've already been declared in Christ, which is holy. You need to recognize who you are, Christian. You are Christ's and God's, his holy person. Many many think of it like this. Um, I have been married for 13 years now. 13, I think. David, how long have you been married? It's hard. He's like, uh oh, math test. So you can't ask your wife. That's not, that's part of the exam. How long have you been married, Jeremiah? 18, 25, 13. So let's say that, uh, no offense, Jeremiah, we're going to say that David is the most holy among us. I mean, he never does anything that causes Pam any grief, never upsets her. I mean, he, he's on the straight and narrow. Maybe once or twice in their marriage has he sinned against her and had to repent. Jeremiah, well, he's not as good as David, but he's better than me. And so, you know, five, ten times he's, he's had to ask for Autumn's forgiveness in their marriage. He gets to me, and I am often, all too often, too unappreciative of my wife. Too often I speak to her in a manner that is harsh. Too often I do not live with her in an understanding way. And week after week and day after day, I come to her and I say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? I love you. I'm committed to loving you. And she forgives me. 
all three of us, different rates of sin, if you will, but all three of us are faithful husbands. No one could say David or Jeremiah or myself are unfaithful to our wives. We're, we're married, we're, we're faithful. Likewise, Christian, if you are loyal to Christ, committed to following Jesus, repentant, he is pleased with you. You are among the faithful. God's word over you is well done. He's pleased with you, Christian. As you walk this pilgrim pathway under the celestial city, you can know that God is pleased with you in Christ, that he loves you in Christ completely. Live in light of God's coming judgment, knowing the judgment that should have fallen on you has fallen on Christ. And that because of that, you have all the blessing of Christ, all the love of the Father. Stay loyal. Keep your eyes on the King. Don't go the way of Ahab. Look at Ahab's obituary here. It comes in verse 37. We'll back up a little bit. He's tried to disguise himself from God in this battle. Jehoshaphat cries out, the Syrians leave him alone. And then we read verse 34, chapter 22, 1 Kings. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians. Until at evening, he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went out through the army, every man to his city, every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. Notice the contrast between when Jehoshaphat died in Jerusalem with his father David, the faithful one. Buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in his blood, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab, that familiar chorus in Kings, and all that he did, and the ivory house that he built, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Do you see what matters? We've seen this throughout Kings. What matters at the end of their lives is not the ivory houses that they built, not their political or military accomplishments. What matters is whether or not they walked with the Lord, whether or not their heart was set upon the Lord their God. I actually think Ahab's obituary starts back in chapter 16 and then is interrupted by his life. And then finally, here we get the final word. But look at what the Bible says about him. 16, verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. 
And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then in verse 25 in chapter 21, the editor just throws out, the author just throws out, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. And so we see Ahab refuse over and over again to listen to the word of the Lord. I mean, the word of the Lord comes to him again and again and again and again and again and again. He says, I don't want to believe that because I don't like it. I want to live my truth. I want to go my way. I'm going to do what I want to do. He even goes out to battle knowing that the word's Lord is truth and that his prophets lie to him and disguises himself thinking that he can somehow escape the judgment of God. God is not so limited. He knew exactly where Ahab was, and God's arrow of judgment found its place in his heart. Ahab's blood filled the bottom of the chariot and was licked up by dogs, bathed in by prostitutes. It is a grotesque and horrific picture, is it not? Ahab was judged. And his death is a preview of his ongoing judgment. The judgment of Ahab in hell is far worse than the picture of him bleeding out in his chariot. God's judgment comes. It comes, friends. Ahab does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. He is judged in this life, and he is still being judged in the next life. God's wrath is eternal. It was our catechism question last week, but let me, let me ask an answer. Question 28. <coughs> What happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? Answer. At the day of judgment, they will receive the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. They will be cast out from the favorable presence of God into hell to be justly and grievously punished forever. Ahab's death should warn us about the horrors of hell, about the need to call out to Christ in faith, He serves as a warning that we should heed. And his son does not heed this warning. Look at verse 51. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and the way of his mother in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. Ahaziah ignores the warning in his father's death and continues to walk in the wicked ways of Jeroboam. 
doing evil, bowing down to false gods. He's unbothered by God's judgment. When I was in seminary, I had a Greek class, and I don't remember many Greek classes, but I remember this one. And my professor was scrawling away on the board and parsing words or something like that. And I was doing my best to pay attention and stay awake, like many of you now. And all of a sudden, everything started to shake. Windows and desks. And everyone is sitting still as if nothing is happening. And I am thinking, am I freaking out here? Am I having some kind of like medical event? Did somebody slip mushrooms into my lunch? What's, what is going on? No one says anything. I mean, there's ripples in my water. No one says anything. A few minutes go by, and the professor stops, and he says, turns around and says, oh, I believe that was an earthquake. You all aren't used to that over here, are you? And then he went back to teaching the class, and I'm sitting there. I'm like, maybe you are used to the earth giving way beneath your feet. I am not. I was scared. Friends, I think all too often when it comes to the anger and judgment of God and the doctrine of hell, we're like my Greek professor, unbothered by it, even forgetful of it. We act as if God's judgment isn't real, as if wrath is not coming. God's wrath is real. Its tremors can already be felt in this life. We should take warning. It is not a small and passing thing to fall under the judgment of God. Hell is eternal. God's anger is to be feared. His justice will drown all who do not drink the blood of the Lamb. The ashes of unbelief will fill the bellies of all who do not eat of the body of Christ. He will tear apart all who do not flee the cross and take refuge beneath the Savior's blood. God will destroy forever body and soul in hell. Hell is worse than a millstone around your neck at the bottom of the ocean. It is worse than a crushing darkness that you can't see out of. Hell is worse than dismemberment. Remember, Jesus says, better to cut off your right hand if it causes you to sin, better to pluck out your right eye if it causes you to sin, than to go into hell. It is worse than all of these pictures. Hell is utter darkness and eternal fire. Hell is worse than being tossed into a lake of brimstone. Hell, fire, and brimstone are real. And they await all who hate Christ. Praise God, we have been saved from that wrath, from that wrath that we deserve by the wrath of God poured out against our substitutionary Savior. Thank God that Christ is raised and now we don't look forward to a lake of fire, but the river of life. Non-Christian, call out to God and be saved. Saved from what? From hell.
The message of Kings is simple. Listen to the word of the Lord. It is Israel's failure to listen to the word that has led to her decline. I mean, we know what happens next. You put your ear to the ground, you can hear the boots of the Assyrians marching. The hell of the exile is just a few pages away. The author leaves us here with the sounds of God's judgment in our ears. The smells of Ahab's blood in our nostrils. And the fear of God in our hearts. He wants us to tremble with terror at the prospect of God's judgment. That we might yet listen to the word of the Lord, call out, and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for giving us the opposite of what we deserve. Thank you for giving us Christ, through whom we can know you as Father rather than as Judge, through whom we come into heaven rather than hell. We thank you for your mercy. It is without end to us. You have poured out infinite blessings on us, and we, we cry out to you. We don't even know what to do in response to all the goodness you've given to us, but our eyes are on you, and our worship is yours. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.